November 19th, and you're back on another edition of Kentucky Politics Weekly. I'm your host, Trey Watson, joined as always by Tom Stevens. Tom, how you doing, my friend? Man, Trey, d- depression reigns, dude. Yeah, I, I, I saw I saw you like the tweet, but Father Jim Shicko tweeted the... Uh, the uh, uh, <laughs> That's I, a great one, yeah. I, I'm, 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 stopping, I'm stopping drinking until Christmas. Yeah. It, 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 so, no, no, I, I left it the punctuation. Yeah, so it actually says, I'm stopping, yeah. period. Yeah, I'm dr- are then drinking till Christmas. Drinking till Christmas, yeah. Two separate sentences, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we'll actually get into some numbers on that in the news um, <laughs> here in a few minutes. But uh, we want to introduce our guests. We're joined by Jim Musser from the Kentucky Hospital Association. So uh, this will be the second in our preview of, uh, of the legislative session with the uh, with some of the associations. But uh, Jim, how are you doing today? Great, Trey. Thanks for for having me on. It's great to be with you and Tom and appreciate the opportunity to talk with your listeners a little bit about what's going on with the hospitals and how we're uh, how we're reacting to COVID-19. Absolutely. I think uh, you know, more important than ever uh, is as we move into the winter to see kind of where we're at. So we'll, we'll get to some specific content on that here moving forward, but I'm sure Jim will have some to pitch in here as we move on to the news, because I think the biggest item is the governor had his daily press conference yesterday and uh, released some new rules. Uh, I will preface this entire conversation by saying the next five minutes or so are the thoughts of the host that are in no way reflective <laughs> of the thoughts or opinions of any of the, any of the guests or co-hosts. <laughs> um, I mean, where to, where to start? I, th- this guy's an idiot. He's an idiot. I can go blast my abs to the gym, but I can't go to school. I can I can go eat dinner in a tent outside with heaters, which, Tom, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but these tents that are outside in order to retain heat to make it a warm tent, how many walls do you think they're going to have on them? Um, well, at the, the soon-to-be-formed uh, Stevens Tent Rental Company, um, we'll give you whatever you want. I mean, I, I'm like, pup I'm think, tents. I'm thinking they'll probably I mean, normally have, sides would be. I'm thinking they'll probably you know, have normal, four walls and, yeah, and probably yeah. a roof. And unless you want to kill your desks, guests with carbon monoxide, it's going to have a ventilation system of some sort, air flowing around it. There's literally no difference between eating inside and outside or these tents. There's none. There's none. It, it, these, these rules are so. You have you have private schools that have had for four months had zero cases. How are, how are they supposed to improve on zero? Jim, we may need to uh, <laughs> use your contacts and get some emergency high flow oxygen sent to Grace House right now. <laughs> I, it's, uh, the, where these, you might be hyperventilating. The the rules. It, uh, Tom, he's created a he's created a bailout program for restaurants. And he did not talk to the restaurant association before we did it. Jim, so I, I, Jim how, how do you think that would work if a bailout program was created for hospitals, but nobody talked to the hospitals before they created it? You think that would go well? Well, probably not, but I will, uh, I will jump in here and, and, you know, the hospital association is not a political organization. We're all about the care of patients. 
Um, and we are very fortunate to have a good relationship with the Department of Public Health, the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. And so uh, we do converse regularly with members of the administration and, and we appreciate that relationship. We think it is crucial for our patients. And the point that I always make, whether we're talking with folks in the executive branch or the legislative branch, every one of our patients is one of their constituents and we are perfectly aligned. It's very different from most other industries because our interests are, are so perfectly aligned that you know the, the hospital's role is, is quite different. It's, it's different too because you know, we're not the widget manufacturers and widget manufacturer A doesn't really want to put widget manufacturer B out of business in the hospital world because our hospitals really rely on each other. They converse regularly. And, and so it's very important you also don't pick your customers. Absolutely not. We, <laughs> uh, we take, we take anyone who comes to our door and anyone who comes to our door, whether they're wealthy or poor, black or white, male or female, gay or straight, you name the category, we are going to give them the very best care that we know how. You know, the hospitals are doing a great job. And, you know, we've said multiple times over the last nine months on the podcast, Tom, that, that you know, to me, especially, you know, my wife being a physician in a hospital, to me, you know, a virus is going to do what a virus is going to do. And, and the, the restrictions that that need to be put in place need to be done less to stop the virus. Cause you can't stop a virus and, and more to make sure that the hospitals are able to, to handle both COVID patients and just the regular flow of patients. And, you know, Jim, we were talking before the show, you guys, I, I think looking at, looking at the, at the past dashboards, I think you, you definitely have seen an uptick in the amount of ICU beds being occupied by COVID patients, but you still have plenty of capacity to, to, to handle both COVID and, uh, I mean, there are some areas that are that are struggling more, but you know, statewide, we we have capacity, correct? That's exactly right, Trey. Um, you know, it's there's somber news, but there's good news. Yes, there's been a very significant uptick in the number of cases and a significant uptick in the number of hospitalizations and use of the ICU unit is part of that. But the good news is we still have capacity. The hospitals have done an excellent job in managing their capacity and they talk to each other and KHA works with them on a local and regional basis to try and make sure that there are plans in place so that if there's a community surge in a community, we have the ability to transfer patients efficiently to make sure that patients, it always comes down to, are we able to treat the patients? And the good news is we still have good capacity and hospitals have been taking the steps necessary to ensure that there is bed capacity. The more somber part of this is what happens if the healthcare worker goes down? You know, it's instead of who watches the watchman, it's who helps the helpers. Because if we start losing ICU unit nurses, or we have doctors who are exposed and they're not able to be in the hospital for days or weeks. We don't have the ability to just walk out onto the street and find an ICU unit nurse or to find a virologist. You know, it's, it's going to be tough, particularly in rural areas where the pool is even, even smaller. And it's a case of, yes, there are traveling nurses. There are what we might refer to as nurse temps 
but there's a cost to that and we are in competition with the rest of the country and so if a rural eastern Kentucky community suddenly needs to hire nurses and they can afford to pay $35 an hour but they can go to New York or Texas and make $250 an hour where do we think those nurses are going to actually go you know we all we all have to operate in the economic world as well as the healthcare world. Well, and I think there's seen anything like that now, Jim, like between you guys say and um, long-term care facilities where there's an attempt to sort of, uh, um, I don't hey, I'll just use the word steal. I mean, try to, to um, recruit staff away pretty actively with COVID. We are actively working together and in constant talks with the long-term care associations to try and make sure that we have plans in place. And we've already seen a couple of instances where uh, a nursing home has been overwhelmed and suddenly there are 35 COVID patients showing up at one of our hospitals. Fortunately, that has always taken place up until now uh, with one of our big hospitals in Louisville or Northern Kentucky. Um, but you know the potential is there for that to happen. You think about the amount of Kentucky's population that lives on the border. So it's not just within Kentucky. Uh, you know, King's Daughters in Ashland serves a huge swath of Southern Ohio and Southwestern West Virginia, in addition to much of Eastern Kentucky. So we really have to we have to constantly be communicating, and I think that's that's. Uh, one of the roles that I'm going to brag on KHA, I think we have have played a pivotal role in making sure that that kind of communication is taking place between the hospitals, between the systems, and between the long-term care facilities and the hospitals. So uh, that's a that's a long, convoluted answer to a very <laughs> straightforward question. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of concern too. There was a New York Times article about it. I think it was on Sunday, maybe. Uh, but I, you know, I'm hearing it in some of the physician dad groups that I'm in and, and from my wife at some of the, the medical groups that she's in on social media, a significant concern about burnout. You know, you have record numbers of doctors uh, leaving the profession to, to do other things. They just, they feel uh, either overworked or underappreciated or both and are, and are better bailing. And it's, you know, that's a, that's a significant concern as well. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a case of the hours are grueling and, Let's face it, we're all sick of the pandemic. We all want to say, enough, I'm done with this. You know, I'm tired of wearing a mask. I'm tired of social distancing. I'm tired of being told what I can do and what I can't do. But add on top of that the stresses that the frontline healthcare workers are, are feeling. You know, they're working grueling hours where they have to try and continue to be compassionate caregivers. They're witnessing sometimes horrific things with, you know, people who are unable to breathe. In some cases, people who are losing their lives. In some cases, they're coworkers, which is even even more stressful. That's exactly right. And it's it's the, the stresses in their personal lives as too, because, you know, they're concerned about their children and their family members. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of folks who are facing financial stress right now, too. It may not be the healthcare worker themselves, but if your son or daughter or your sister or some other family member is losing their job, I mean, in the paper today, we're talking about the news. 
Lexmark is announcing that it's it's yep. doing a significant layoff. And you know, and un- unemployment claims were were back up for the first time in several weeks today. So so there's important balancing that has to take place because we can't lose our healthcare workers because if we lose those frontline healthcare workers, then we are going to face uh, a much more significant crisis. It's it's not that the situation is great now, but if you want to really compound it, let's start let's start seeing what happens when we lose our healthcare workers, and and I guarantee the situation will be worse. Well, on today's rant right now, I mean, um, I think there's a lot of healthcare workers that are about to have their um, school aged children back in the home. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you want to continue and, your rant? I didn't. Yeah, let's let's. Jim is like the perfect antidote to yeah. To your, Jim, to your Jim, rant kind of pulled it back together for us. Jim's a very soothing. He's got a very soothing uh, uh, tenor to his to to his voice. That, uh, but let's 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 get back to the rant for a second, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I I just I don't understand the gyms. Do they just do they have that good of a lobbyist that that they are somehow able to to this, I mean this is uh, what what is what is the effectiveness rate of a mask after being soaked in spittle and sweat for an hour long workout like that's you know question number one but like what Tom I, I'm I'm pretty certain that like we got these things called roads and like solid ground and trails and stuff where you can go run outside if you want you can also you know you can buy a barbell you can fill buckets with sand you can you know strap a kid are you getting ready to go rocky four are you gonna start doing like Like, punch a meat in a freezer yeah there are are ways you can work out without being in a gym we are totally so ass backwards and it's not just kentucky it's in this country we have focused on the wrong things the first thing we should have focused on is in most other countries did this is how do we get schools open first once we can get schools open we can start opening other things but the the financial toll that that decision that one decision will have in this country over the next 50 years tom we're talking potentially trillions of dollars in added social welfare costs to taxpayers from a generation of young children who at a key point, both in social and educational development in their lives, couldn't go to a classroom because we got to go to bars. We got to have, we got, we got to be able to go, go to college football games. Tom, Rupp Arena is still going to be open, which, which I, let's, let's, let's go to the universities. There is one reason and one reason only that these joints are still open. And that is tuition. <laughs> if, if, if we were paying tuition to go to send our kids to public school, you, you'd be damn sure those things are going to be open right now. But the bond ratings and the bonded buildings that were built on these campuses with tuition money that expected to come in, because they already spent the tuition money that's coming in today. University of Kentucky, University of Louisville would be bankrupt if they had done the right thing and sent these kids home and people had pulled their kids out of school or gone, gone elsewhere. They'd be bankrupt. And guess who picks up the bill if, if, they, if they go down, Tom? Um, I'm going to guess the taxpayers, the taxpayers, <laughs> the only reason you, I mean, you look like at, you two look for at, two today. This is a big day. You, for you look at what UK is being allowed to do university of Louisville, Moorhead, where you look at what they're being allowed to do versus what, what kids in, uh, in public, uh, K through 12 schools are being allowed to do the decisions being made revolving around universities. How in the hell are you going to cancel everything that you've canceled 
and they're still going to be able to have 3,000 people a game interrupt. It is uh, ludicrous. I wonder, thinking about Commonwealth Stadium, is there one or two home games left? Uh, I want to see At least two. one. Can we play South Carolina? I think, I think we play at least South Carolina. In any event, there's at least one game. I mean, they, they may come out and there's time to issue. It, it is it, it is it is a it is a bad it it is a bad PR move if they don't. Well, so I was not necessarily even cancel um, attendance, but I would think at least in the private areas where you have the skyboxes and other things where there's no requirement to um, social distance and the mass and whatever else. I mean that. UK may see the writing on. I, I would think that um, they'll at least have internal discussions about do you allow something like that to go on because of the risk that it engenders. But my uh, my, my, my question my question is if 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 I if I if I open a a school but call it a gym, can can we still have class? Well, I had people asking me about this. Um, you know, following the announcement yesterday, like uh, people that I have client relationships with and um, restaurant industries, and even even I've heard. Um, people trying to just one of the things interesting about this you do see all sorts of innovation that people come up with so right now um where the parochial schools are going to be closing unexpectedly and um uh, the catholic schools what have you looking at you know basically talking about creating pods for kids so let's say three or four families get together and they're going to dump their kids they're going to be at one house on monday they're going to be at another house on tuesday another house on wednesday because there is no um there is not availability of other childcare avenues and parents got to work. Um, and, and to kind of what Jim was referencing earlier, um, you know, some of the parents I've talked to, they are physicians and there are people in the, uh, you know, critical workforce areas that they don't have a means to accommodate this right now. So what are they going to, they going to do? They can't just, you know, put the kid in front of a, a computer and go back to that type of educational scenario. It's disappointing on a personal level to me. You guys can't see it. I'm wearing a, uh, hat from private school where my my kid goes right now and um you know i have family that are also in some of the catholic schools i've reached out to some people here in lexington louisville this morning i'm just trying to get a feel for what sort of the, the the temperature is of folks in those communities and it's disappointing because these are schools that um you know, people have made a decision to utilize uh, a private school um, they've opted out you know generally speaking they pay a significant amount of money in addition and these schools have all Put together pretty sophisticated plans and and the experience that i have anecdotally is these plans have worked extraordinarily well and they really should be the examples for what um, other facilities educational opportunities can use uh, in my own situation uh, you know the school spent like half a million dollars on ppe plastic wall shielding restructuring classes limiting class sizes uh, training uh you know hired hired uh, medical staff to work the school whatever else and to date um you know there's been a single case with a, and, of a student and they were, had been put into cohorts and everything else so they were very easy able to identify that and now yep. it, it's all why are we stopping i mean well, that that part's what this is an example of what is working versus example of what isn't working and it's again it's the one size fits all problem here we we need nuance let, let me let me let me put on my my tinfoil hat for a minute tom because this is something that uh that was brought up to me yesterday by somebody who who does interact frequently with the officials at the at the state level for for health uh stack and, and the governor's folks they i, I was i was told i was told that it's likely that you know we, we've probably are at the peak of this particular wave 
And so the governor now can put restrictions in place. The with or without the restrictions, the, the cases are probably going to decline a little bit over the next couple of weeks. And the governor will then be able to claim a victory politically for us. Uh, see, look, my restrictions work. The cases went down when they were going to go down anyways. You know, that's 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 one tenfold hat thing. But, you know, to, to, to your point on, on private, private schools, Tom, I know for a fact, several of the Lexington private schools after Thanksgiving were ready to come back with additional classes of people who had pulled their kids out of pub, public schools because they needed in, in-person instruction. So I feel bad for those parents who had already fled one situation and are now being forced into another bad situation. Um, you know, let's let let's move off the restrictions, new restrictions for a little bit, so I can let my blood pressure drop back down. And uh, let's talk some more some more COVID. See, I'm rel- trying to figure out how you rooked him into being on this show today. <laughs> like, oh, I want my money back. I'm out of here. Some more COVID related items. Uh, you know, uh, the Courier Journal Tom has a, has an article up about the uh, PEBT cards that, uh, that that I got and some other people I've heard from have received and kind of what they are. You know, it is from a COVID cares uh, uh, program. Uh, that's kind of part of the national school lunch program, uh, make sure that, that money still gets to kids. Um, you know, what still is kind of shocking to me is they're basically encouraging people who, who don't need it to buy, buy the food and, and donate it back to families. You know, I got two, I got a couple issues here, Tom. One, you know, we've seen people who got unemployment checks who then later the state came back and said, Oh, you actually didn't qualify for that. Uh, give us our money back. You know, I, I'm very hesitant to spend the money to, to then donate it to a food bank under the concern that they're going to come back to me and say, well, you make enough money. You didn't really, you shouldn't have really gotten that card. So we need our five, five eighty six a day back. You know, so I, I'm, I still haven't taken it off of the little piece of paper it came on. Um, I'm also concerned something that you brought up with me before, Tom, is, is, you know, when federal dollars are given or or directed to a specific individual, it is against the law for someone else to use that money. So, you know, is it even legal for me to, to spend that money at a grocery store and then go donate to a food bank? I, I, I I don't know. Um, you know, all of these. It's an interesting nuance. I would, I would probably just you're clear of it. Now is now is somebody going to prosecute me for for spending the money and donating to a food bank? Uh, probably not. I'm more concerned about the about whether or not they're going to come with that handout looking for the money back later. Um, but at the same time, this money has been appropriated, and if it doesn't get spent, I mean, you, t- Jim, you've worked for the for Congress, Tommy, you've worked all over all over government. That money's you, you know that money's going to sit in that bank account for God knows how long. It's not like it's going to just get right rotated right back into the general fund to be spent somewhere else. It's already been appropriated. It's just going to, it's going to sit there for God knows how long unless, unless it's spent. So, you know, I've got some calls out to figure out if I can get some level of assurance that no one's ever going to come with a handout looking for this money back, then, you know, I'd be more open to, to spending it at a food bank somewhere and donating it. But, you know, I, especially with the experience people have had on with unemployment, I, I have serious concerns of that. I think you should wait and see if it pops up in the treasurer's uh, unclaimed property system. <laughs> see how long it takes. It pops up. And, uh, uh, staying on the on the topic of charity, a uh, new report out: uh, Kentuckians are uh, less than charitable. I guess thirty second out of fifty <laughs> states for overall charitable actions, which include a combination of volunteering and service and charitable giving, according to uh, Wallet Hub, who does you know all sorts of all sorts of stuff like that. Um, 
you know, just kind of interesting, especially in, in the in the time that we're in, to see that, uh, you know, I think we made strides in Kentucky, but it's, it's not, you know, not anything to, to to parade about. You know, I will say I, I do think with with less people giving Kentucky, that's why programs like what uh, Commissioner Quarles has done, trying to take the uh, trying to take you know, scattered money for, for things like food banks and organize them in a more directed, targeted fashion and kind of, kind of heard all the cats out there that are trying to have the same goal that are trying to do the same thing, but may not coordinate with each other, you know, setting up an overarching system on top, you know, we, we probably need more of that. And I know that was something, uh, I was with Ryan and we left a meeting with Hal Rogers during the campaign in 2015. And he, he came up with that whole idea for the hunger initiative after meeting with, with Congressman Rogers on, on the ride back from Somerset. Um, you know, so that's you know, kudos to Ryan for, for identifying an issue and, and coming up with a, with a very effective way to, uh, to deal with it. Uh, staying still more on COVID uh, article from the Herald leader, Kentucky residents, your pandemic boredom by breaking out the liquor survey survey shows <laughs> uh i'll read from the herald leader here pandemic related boredom has caused nearly i love that pandemic related boredom it's caused nearly one-third of kentucky residents to set aside uh the beer and wine and start breaking out the liquor <laughs> is it boredom or is it paranoia is it it could be all by the way we're, so we're 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 uh one-third Tennessee, according to this survey, this is done by the American Addiction Centers. Tennessee is at the nation's highest mark. Sixty-two percent say that they have switched that they have uh, uh, caused them to drink spirits with higher alcohol content due to pandemic boredom. Sixty-two percent. And I suspect that doesn't really go quite far enough because one of the things that we know from the enforced lockdowns and so forth, we have seen an increase in opioid use. We've seen increases in suicide. We've seen increases in domestic violence. So there's a real cost to, to trying to keep people locked up in their houses. You know, it's a, it's a case of, it's a political decision as to how you're going to do it, but, but we have to be cognizant that there are costs as well as benefits when we start talking about uh, locking the economy down. Um, Joe Biden's advisor on this front, uh, a professor from the University of Minnesota, not a medical doctor, but a, a PhD, has called for that kind of lockdown, and it sort of ignores the costs that are involved, and that's that's the kind of thing that I think we have to be cognizant of because for us, for us, for our hospitals. We're concerned with all of our patients. It's not simply about COVID-19. COVID-19 is a pandemic, and of course we are concerned, and it's at the head of the line right now, but we can't forget about all of the deaths that are attributable to opioid use, and Kentucky is ground zero for that. So we really have to, we have to be cognizant of, of weighing those things and making sure that we are taking all of the health effects into consideration because, you know, mental health is directly tied to physical health. They are equally important and, and we have to kind of remember that. Hey, Jim, when you look at the, um, your membership around the state now, um, especially the, uh, the smaller hospitals, regional hospitals, people that have been hit more, maybe related to Affordable Care Act and other things. I mean, are, do we have significant areas where you identify gaps? I mean, like uh, even just like transportation distance from 
like what's the farthest that somebody in Kentucky has to go to get to a hospital? I don't I don't know the exact answer to that, Tom. The ideal is that no one should need to travel more than about 30 minutes. And it's one of the dangers that that our rural hospitals are facing. It's a it's a real crisis. We've had several studies come out. Um, even before the pandemic, we had about 18 of our hospitals that are so financially challenged that they really are on the knife's edge. And Kentucky hospitals are facing 2.6 billion, billion with a B, in losses this year. And I know that may be counterintuitive because everybody hears about, you know, oh, everybody's being hospitalized with COVID-19 and oh, there are all those billions of dollars in federal money flowing in. But the fact of the matter is, uh, hospital census has been down. People have been afraid to come back even after the, after the elective procedures were allowed to restart. Our uh, emergency rooms have never seen a rebound above 70% of pre-pandemic levels. And that takes a real toll on the hospitals. Uh, it's also more expensive. COVID patients tend to stay longer and cost more to treat than other patients. And both Medicaid and Medicare pay less than the cost, not the charge, less than the cost of what, what we're incurring to treat the patient. And so when you start talking about small rural hospitals, it's, it's very dangerous for them. Uh, we heard Harrison Memorial's CEO testified before the A&R committee very recently saying that they were operating in the negative. It's a not-for-profit, small rural hospital. But what happens if that hospital has to close? There are two big impacts. The first one is the people in that community. It's a five-county community that, that that hospital's serving. The people in that community now have lost their access to health care. So they've got to try and get to the University of Kentucky, or they've got to try and get to Northern Kentucky to get to a hospital. That means there's going to be more mortality because if you're having a stroke or you're having a heart attack, having a community hospital will save your life. And if you have to travel 45 minutes or an hour, that may be the difference between life and death. The other aspect of it is, and we'll use Harrison Memorial because there's, there's public record. The CEO says we employ 450 people. It's one of the largest private employers in that community. If that hospital goes down, 450 jobs suddenly disappear. And they're not just any jobs, they're jobs that tend to pay better than average. We saw this happen earlier in the year with the closing of Belfont Hospital in Greenup County in Northeastern Kentucky. A thousand jobs immediately went away. The city of Russell where that hospital was located immediately lost millions in tax revenues. That's, that's devastating to a rural community and it has uh, it has a multiplier effect across the community just like adding a business has a positive multiplier losing one has a negative multiplier because now those well-paid people are not going to be in that community anymore they're not going to be buying groceries they're not paying taxes they're not supporting the local school they're not shopping they're not eating out all of that is gone and so the impact is multiplied across the community and we're looking right now at 23 of our hospitals around the state that are on the knife's edge. And so we really have to take every step that we can to preserve that access to care and to preserve those important employers in those communities.
Well, and don't forget too, and and a lot of these small communities, you're one of your number one charitable givers is every one of these hospitals has, has a charitable foundation attached to it. And you're one of your number one charitable givers to a variety of causes in the community is going to be that hospital. So the hospital goes down, not, not only have you lost the, the, the revenue, uh, you know, that the government uses, but you're, you're losing another entity that was, you know, propping up some, you know, some functions that, the government's now going to have to pick up the cost for because that charitable foundation is also gone. That's exactly right, Trey. Uh, all right, I got a couple more news items. Then we'll we'll we're kind of, kind of already got a got a foot in, but we'll we'll go we'll jump full in on uh, on the health of the hospitals in twenty twenty one session in a second. But uh, Tom, I don't know if you saw the governor of California, which state has one of the most restrictive uh, COVID rules. Uh, by the way, by the way, wasn't just the governor. Now it's come out. Also, the the heads of the California Medical Association went to a dinner at the French Laundry. If you're not familiar with the French Laundry, very fancy restaurant up in wine country, just uh, outside of San Francisco. Uh, went went to a dinner with well well north of the uh, allowable gathering limits. Masks not involved. Uh, the governor has has made some very uh, uh, apologetic statements. But you know, you know, my question is, where did they, where did they get the apologetic statement? Let them eat cake. Well, my, my question is, where did, where did they get their hair done before they went? Did they go to Pelosi's place, or you know, did they get? Man, go, go I started using else? this phrase about you know having apocalypse fatigue because we are all tired of this. There's a certain point when you see this by public servants like this, particularly in a place as challenged as California, as blessed it is with finances, natural resources, and so many things. I mean, are, are folks there are they citizens or are they subjects? You know, as a citizen, it's completely unacceptable. I just the the arrogance of that is beyond imagination. I hope they hold their feet to the fire. Um, Tom, my wife's been watching Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Have you oh, watched this? Yeah, yeah, I actually I, uh, finished it. Yeah, it's good. I I, uh, I was out after the first episode when what's supposedly taking place in the 1950s. They talked about the the protagonist's uh, mother being killed in a car wreck on New Circle Road. Tama, you, you're 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 from Lexington. What year was New Circle built in? Oh gosh, in the '60s, wasn't it? Uh, or like parts of it, like it wasn't con- it wasn't connected all the way. I don't think it's like I, in the '60s. I know, like the the back the back end of it back here. I've got pictures of our house before it was you know when it was being built, and the New Circle is not present. It, uh, well, I feel like like I know the the final conclusion of it. I don't know. That's a good thing to look up. That's the type of thing you go to like Parkette and there's photos on the wall and you it, can identify the date. On it, the, it, it, it ain't the fifties. I'll, I'll just say that. So that's a little, there's uh, definitely some historical anomalies in there. She goes to like Fairmont high school, which I'm pretty sure there's no Fairmont high school. And, <laughs> um, what else was in there? Uh, there? There were several things. Uh, uh, good. I liked it though. I thought it was good. good. I, the ending was satisfying. I, I will leave it at that. I, my wife said the same thing. I didn't make it to the end. Um, Good good night last night for for the for the cats and I think it's for Louisville in the NBA draft. Uh, you yeah, had yeah. Uh, you had uh, uh, Maxi who I think everybody expected to be picked in the in the first round and Quigley who was a surprise to pretty much everybody. Uh, of course, Quigley is reunited with Kenny Payne now in in uh, New York. They the Knicks uh, traded up uh, to 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 get that pick to uh, to pick Quigley, and then Nick Richards got picked by Charlotte in the uh, in the second round, which means he's reunited with PJ Washington. And then you had uh, uh, Jason Nora, I think is how you say his name, the the sh- shooter from uh, Louisville, a uh, three-point specialist, uh, a decent rebounder too. 
uh, he, he got picked, uh, I believe, in the second round as well. So good night for the Kentucky-based teams in the NBA draft. And, Tom, I, there is a football game this weekend. I'm not going to talk about it because it's not going to go is well. There, is there any hope of the game being canceled? Yeah, that's that's a possible net pickup on COVID nineteen. Cancel the Alabama game. Yeah, it, it sucks too because it's 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 a good time. It's a four o'clock game and nobody can go out and watch it now. That 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 would be the one win for us if it, if the game got canceled. <laughs> I was trying to go through the executive orders this morning and and the restrictions on the eight person rule from two households also extends to sitting at the same table outdoors at a restaurant. Which is one of those two. I'm like, I didn't realize that when listening to it, but that's how it's written in the order. And I, I have, I've had um, some people inquire about the restrictions related to the restaurants, and it's it's a it, it's tempting to focus on local restaurants, and it's got the stuff in there about publicly traded companies and whatever. But it's it's not how like how how do franchisees and and other entities work, and it's. I don't know. It was, it was complicated. So, yeah, that's that's how I came across that. So, if you're yeah. planning to go out and meet some people, make sure that it's no more than eight people from your same family at your outdoor um, viewing location. Can be a lot of quick quickie marriages set up. That's that's what you need if you're gonna have a restaurant. Put a, put a wedding chapel out front, and and then like a, a you know you get when you pay your, when you pay your pay your bill, you get a divorce. Like there's got to be some <laughs> some way you can scan that. Yeah, you could like just sign a contract with your mom for to rent her place for the twenty five person, um, you know, whatever restriction on Thanksgiving. Yeah, there you go. Uh, all right, promote the gray economy. There you go. There you go. Uh, all right, we're we're gonna we're gonna get off the news and, and go kind of back to the hospitals. And uh, Jim, we already kind of kind of went through some of the financial uh, considerations. You know, I, I know uh, Senator McConnell's been very helpful uh getting getting a a lot of money passed through the the cares act uh to help replace some of that some of that lost revenue uh you know it in in general where 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 are the hospitals i mean i I know you said we had 20 some that that were in financial issues financial straits before covid kind of his has the cares act money helped held them help them kind of stay at even where they're still still in financial straits, but at least just regular financial straits or is or, or were we looking at still below where they would be left, left on their own devices without COVID? Let me start by giving uh, absolute kudos to the majority leader for all that he has done to help the hospitals. He's been an absolute champion for the hospitals and our Kentucky delegation generally has has just been superb. Uh, of special note, I think Andy Barr really went to bat for the hospitals early on in in fighting for our share of PPE because our hospitals would be ordering the personal protective equipment and it was being redirected other places because Kentucky was not a hot spot. Um, you know, we've we've uh, I don't want to go too far out on a limb because it's still serious, but we have done better than much of the country. And it has been providing its own set of challenges because what has happened is because we weren't a hot spot, money that was coming out of the federal government wasn't initially directed to Kentucky. It went to hot spots. PPE that our hospitals needed was being redirected to hot spots, and so that was that was all very challenging. But our federal delegation really stepped in and 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 stepped up in a big way. And 
for a little state like Kentucky, we really do punch above our weight and, and thank goodness for our people that, that we have the majority leader in the United States Senate. Uh, it's, it's been invaluable to us. Those federal dollars have covered about 40% of the losses that the hospitals have suffered thus far. But the sad part is COVID-19 isn't stopping on December 31st. As much as we all wish that it would, it's going to still be here. So we are looking for ways that we can help ourselves. And we are going to be talking with members of the legislature about what we call our Hippocratic Oath legislative platform. First, do no harm. We're not coming asking for a penny from the taxpayers of Kentucky. We're not looking for bailouts. All we're saying is please don't cut the amounts of money that are going to our disproportionate share hospitals called disproportionate share hospitals because they serve a disproportionate share of the un uninsured. Uh, those are the hospitals that take care of the poorest of the poor. Please don't cut Medicaid payments, even though it pays less than cost, those, those dollars are crucial to keeping the doors open. Please don't label any taxes on us in the middle of a pandemic. We are not the golden goose. We can't lay any golden eggs for you. If you do that, we're likely to see a number of our, our hospitals disappear. And the state can't afford that. Our patients can't afford that. The taxpayers can't afford that. And so we're really looking uh, to the legislature, not for any kind of financial bailout, just please make sure that, that any legislation that passes doesn't do, do anything to damage us. And we are, we are diligently looking for ways to tap into uh, other federal funds that we might be able to draw down. We have some ideas on that front that we have not yet talked with our friends in the legislature about, and, and that will be coming up in the not too distant future. But uh, we aren't looking for anything from, from the taxpayers. Just please don't hurt us. Um, um, what about, uh, what about the, at the, and this is kind of, kind of outside the scope a little bit, but what about at the, at the federal level? You know, I know there's a lot of discussion with a whole, whole bunch of different things that would affect hospitals going on at the federal level. Is there anything out there you see on the horizon that that could help, help or hurt you guys? You know, I, I know that there's a, there's a proposal now in Senate help on surprise medical billing. Um, that unfortunately it, it, it appears to be kind of rate setting in disguise. Uh, That's exactly right, Trey. You have analyzed that exactly correctly. Um, it is an issue uh, that's probably uh, more of an issue other places. Kentucky actually has an enormously small amount of surprise billing that takes place. It, it's uh, maybe six or seven percent primarily focused on some issues out of emergency rooms where out-of-network doctors might be working on the weekend or something. But what we, uh, what we at the Hospital Association have been asking for is let's leave that to the private sector. Let's leave it to private negotiations between the insurers and the providers. We are all big people and we can come to the table and we can work these things out and hold harmless the patient. Uh, you know, we want to we want to be paid what we have have an agreement for in the copay, but anything above and beyond that, we ought to be able to negotiate that between the providers and the insurance companies. And I think the insurance companies would agree to that as well. Um, 
because you're right, it, it ultimately becomes an exercise in rate setting when the government gets involved. Um, everybody can agree we want to hold the patient harmless. Let's, let's leave it to the private sector. Is there anything else that you see on the federal level that either would, would help or hurt you guys that you, you kind of have an eye on? Especially well, rolling into a new administration. Yes, um, there are a couple of things. First of all, we would be most appreciative uh, if action is taken on the majority leader's plan to uh, replenish the funds in the provider relief fund. Uh, certainly our hospitals here in Kentucky would like to be ven- beneficiaries of that because Kentucky hospitals were some of the very first to be completely shut down from from doing any elective procedures. And those elective procedures are the dollars that we use to make up. That's where the money is. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's where we make up for the cost of care that isn't covered by Medicaid and Medicare. And so we weren't a hotspot, so we didn't get money. And so we would like to be recognized for the fact that we were shut down early. We did exactly what we were asked to do. Uh, we we certainly don't disagree with the fact that we were asked to do it. We think that that was uh, the best evidence that was available at the time was being used when that request was made, and we voluntarily complied. But we have to we have to be able to continue to serve our patients once the pandemic is is over with we've got to survive the pandemic and come out on the other side and on the on the good news side rather than being all all doom and gloom uh, you're you're the wrong place <laughs> <laughs> there's there's actually some some really optimistic news too because first of all we have we have been told to anticipate vaccines first from Pfizer and then from Moderna. And I was reading today that uh, AstraZeneca's uh, clinical trials have been going great. Uh, those have been taking place in, in Oxford, England, and they also have had a 95% efficacy rate, uh, which is phenomenal. It's It's been amazing that Operation Warp Speed has been just an unbelievable success in getting a vaccine through the process, through the clinical trials, through through all of the safety and stress tests that take place to bring a vaccine out in less than a year. You know, it's it's just about one year ago that this this virus was identified. And you compare that to smallpox, to polio, to measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, things that took decades, centuries before a vaccine was developed. And within a year of identifying the virus, there are now vaccines coming online and our frontline hospital workers are going to be amongst the first to be vaccinated. So we're very excited about that. In addition to the vaccines coming online, you know, we've, we've seen a steady decline in the fatality rate. And part of that is because the, the power of big numbers and there's a lot more testing. And so, uh, a lot more people who have who have tested, you know, survive. But it's also a case that it's novel coronavirus. So we've been learning every day, every day. And it's why you hear some of the communication has been so horrible. And you guys know this. You know, somebody comes down from Mount Olympus with with golden tablets and says, This is what you must do. <laughs> well, you know, that's not exactly how science works. This is a novel coronavirus, and every two weeks we've learned something different. Yeah. And, 
forget the thing that was on the golden tablet last week. Here's the new thing. So like the I mean, survivability has gone up because we've stopped putting everyone on respirators. We figured out, Oh, that's not always the best for every patient. That's right. That's <laughs> Much right. to the chagrin of the uh, respirator business. <laughs> it was very excited. For so, a little while. Speak, speaking, speaking of a business who, who, who stands to make some money, uh, how how was how are Kentucky's hospitals set up with uh, medical deep freezes? I know I've read a couple of articles that they're that's the, that's the next big shortage as far as getting the vaccine out because they do have to be stored at like negative one hundred three degrees. At least the Pfizer one does. How, how are how's the the medical quality deep freeze set up? Well, it it as I'm sure you're not going to be surprised to hear it it varies greatly across the state as to what hospitals have. Uh, the state has told us there probably isn't a need for us to invest in it because uh, we are fortunate. UPS uh, over in Louisville has massive, massive capacity, and uh, it looks like the the vaccine for all of the country is going to be stored in that facility. So uh, that's helpful. Yeah, that's <laughs> not great for Kentucky. So, so we're very fortunate on that front. And the Moderna uh, vaccine, which will be the second one, doesn't have those same uh, same storage limitations on it. Um, and the other thing, I, I would be really remiss if I didn't mention a new therapy that has been granted emergency use authorization by FDA just within the last few days. And I find it very exciting. Eli Lilly has. Uh, a new unpronounceable drug, Bamlan <laughs> Ivimab, uh, that is an infusion. It's a one dose. So you've gone, Tom, you go over across town, you get your, your COVID test and they say, yeah, you're positive. So the next stop for you is you're going to go to the hospital and we're going to give you Bamlan Ivimab and it's one dose. And we're going to put this vial in with some saline solution and infuse it into your arm. That'll take about an hour. Then we're going to keep you there for another hour to make sure that you're okay, that there's no adverse reaction. And then we're going to send you home. You're not going to stay in the hospital. We don't need to put you in the hospital. We don't need to put you in the ICU unit. You've got a treatment that's going to allow you to go home. And that to me is, yeah, it's, it's exciting as, as horrible as, the disease is, and as horrible as living through this pandemic has been, one of the real silver linings has been the tremendous advances in medicine that we have seen. Uh, this Eli Lilly uh, drug is known as a monoclonal antibody therapy, and it's a therapy that's been around for a little while, but it's never been applied in this particular way. It's been used for anti-inflammatory diseases or on inflammatory diseases as an anti-inflammatory. It's been used in the treatment of cancer, but it stimulates your natural immune system to attack the virus. So it's, it's really an important step forward. And the fact that we're getting these kinds of things uh, is, is a real bright point in, in the storm. And it gives us all hope that, that we're gonna come out of it better. That, 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 I'm wondering that, if the, like the whole world just went crazy when they heard that the 
all the, the coronavirus vaccine is going to be stored in Kentucky. Do you think the rest of America just had a collective, like, holy spit moment? Oh, like, that, that's we're really going to let these guys do it? That, that's like, going to be a huge, oh, wait wait for the tinfoil hat Twitter people to come out. It's it, it's Mitch McConnell. Yeah, like, if somebody if somebody, <laughs> right. if somebody doesn't get their vaccine, they're going to all blame it on Mitch McConnell. It's going to be yeah, great. Yeah, you get a team Mitch hat and a, uh, and a <laughs> coronavirus on the <laughs> I just like the name of that Eli Lilly thing. It's, it's It sounds like uh, they're coming up with drug names by, like, getting a spoonful of peanut butter in their mouth. <laughs> and then, like, just saying whatever comes to their mind. I got a PPE or, yeah, personal protective equipment question. So we were told, I think, when um, we had the restrictions on um, elective procedures, that a big part of that was so that we could conserve PPE. Is that still yeah. a real factor for the, the, especially the rural hospitals in Kentucky? Do they have access to what they need? I think for the most part, uh, they're in pretty good shape because one of the things that was required going back online uh, after the after the shutdown was they have to maintain as a minimum a 14 day supply of PPE. Um, the other great thing is this is the beauty of, of a capitalist economy. It wasn't directed out of Washington, D.C. It wasn't directed out of the Capitol in Frankfurt. Businesses by the thousands have stepped up to change what they were doing to switch over to making PPE. We've seen it here in Kentucky where they've they've made masks, where they've made face shields, and we've had great partners even out of the community colleges where they have 3D printing, they've been making the face shields uh, and making those available. So we've seen a real dynamic from capitalism stepping in to, to help make sure. That is not to say that there wouldn't be spot shortages or that there wouldn't be problems if we see some sort of big national surge. And, and slightly, slightly off the topic of what you asked me, Tom, we shouldn't be surprised that at this time of year that we're seeing a lot more cases. It's not unique to Kentucky. It's not unique to the United States. It's not unique to North America. It's happening all over the Northern Hemisphere because we're moving into winter. And with that colder weather, people are indoors. They're not able to maintain the same kind of social distance that they were during the warmer months when you could be outside and didn't have to be close to people. And the dry air makes it easier for the virus to be transmitted. So it's natural. It's, it's uh, you know, we definitely need to help our helpers and, and use our good Kentucky common sense to make sure that we're doing the things that we can. Plenty of good scientific evidence that the most effective thing you can do is maintain your distance. Um, if, if you're not able to do that, if you have to be out in public, it's not a political statement to wear a mask or not wear a mask. It's a matter of public health and and think about it in terms of, okay, you're maybe not worried about yourself, but think about elderly friends, elder, elderly relatives, because we know that they are the most vulnerable. If you look at the, if you look at the fatality rate, 75% uh, of the fatalities are in, in people over 70 years of age. So we really need to do everything that we can to try and protect our elderly friends and relatives. Um, so using good hand hygiene and the other the other upside of, of these kinds of precautions, they apply for the seasonal flu as well. And we want to make sure that you're not getting seasonal flu. Go out and get your flu shot. That's low hanging fruit. Uh, protect yourself. And, and when you're doing these things, think about 
how you're helping to protect those frontline healthcare workers, because anything we can do, even if it's just at the margins, if we can help protect those frontline healthcare workers, that's really gonna be important. Keeping the hospitals from being, being overwhelmed and, and not losing our frontline healthcare workers is gonna be good for all of us. So anything that, that our, our listeners can do to help on that front, we would certainly appreciate it. It's not political, it's good public health, and we want everybody to be healthy. Absolutely. I, we'll get we'll wrap up with one last question. What would a win look like on, on sine die at the end of the 30-day session? What, what would a win look like for the hospital association? Just <laughs> status quo? I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, we feel like in the middle of the, the pandemic, when we've got so many other things that really require attention, uh, making big changes now would, would be suboptimal. Uh, I'll I'll put it that way. And one of the great things is we have been very active talking with members of the legislature uh, during the interim, and we have had such a wonderful reception. I'm so appreciative of the leadership of the House and Senate and uh, the members that we've talked to in and out of leadership have just been great. They, they seem to understand the plight that our hospitals are facing. And as I, as I said to you earlier, every one of our patients is one of their constituents and our interests are so completely aligned. I appreciate you having me on to represent the association, represent the, the industry, but our industry really is different than, than most associations. Uh, it's, it's completely aligned with taking care of the people of the Commonwealth and making sure that our ability to do that remains intact. You know, the, the hospitals are absolutely the front line. They're the place that you go to when there's an emergency, when you need care, when you need somebody to, to provide you comfort during an illness. That's what we're there for. And we want to, we want to keep doing that. Absolutely. And keep my wife employed. That's also very important to me personally. Absolutely. <laughs> the, economic, the economic side of it is just critical. <laughs> uh, before, before we go, Tom, one, one note for you uh, and for, for listeners out there, if you're a, uh, if you're a, a kid of about my age, uh, be very excited. Uh, I, I don't know if it debuts this afternoon or this evening or, or tomorrow, but the uh, the first season of the renewed uh, reboot of Animaniacs is going to be on Hulu. I'm very, <laughs> very excited about that. I've been annoying the hell out of my wife singing the theme song around the house for like three days and keeps pissing her off. Um, love, love Animaniacs, especially if you go back and watch some of the, some of the old ones, man, there's some really adult humor in, in those, those shows that, uh, it kind of kind of shock you now being older if you if you watch it. Uh, but uh, Jim, thank you for being on with us, and uh, we uh, look forward to seeing what happens at the hospitals through session, and uh, and also with the new administration coming in in DC. Thank you so much, Trey. Really appreciate being on and, and having the opportunity. Hope we can come back again. Absolutely. And uh, as always, you can catch Kentucky Politics Weekly wherever you stream podcasts. Uh, if you get us on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to give us a review. I think we'll probably do one show next week, uh, early in the week. Probably just be me and Tom for uh, for the short Thanksgiving week. And uh, we'll be back to our uh, association uh, legislation pre legislative preview uh, the week after. But uh, as always, appreciate you being here with Kentucky Politics Weekly, and we'll see you next week.